Life in the early church, Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37. Stand with me as we uh, read God's word. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and all who owned a tract of of land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You may be seated. Life in the early church, number one, the priority of unity. In the early church... They stood together. There was a strong, noticeable unity. They were bold, speaking out, risking their lives to proclaim the resurrected Christ. They shared their wealth and their possessions with one another. They were unified around a single purpose. A love for God, a love for one another, a love for the lost. There were one heart. In Albuquerque, where you guys just came from, you were about five minutes from the church, where the church used to be, where I pastored there. Uh, There was not a lot of unity in that church. It was chaos. It was kind of like a WWE event. In Nevada, it was about missions. And we, as a board, were trying to promote missions and the finance committee, who had a lot of power in that church, Uh, They wanted to build new buildings. Very little evangelism. Occasionally I could get somebody to go door to door with me. We wanted to help an IFCA church in Yarrington, Nevada, uh, get back on its feet. There were four churches, IFCA churches in the area that got together to do that. And people in our church were going, no, you can't go down there. You're our pastor. We fought over helping finance the revitalization of that church and Finally, we settled on putting a box in the back, so if anybody wanted to give some money to it, they could. So much for the body of Christ. When I left that church, it had a series of problems. The first pastor lasted about six months. The next had major health problems, and they merged with another church, and now they're Faith Bible Church in in that town. Unity like Thanksgiving comes from humility. When Christ's honor is the common goal accompanied by humility, unity will flow. In Albuquerque and Nevada, in those churches I pastored, there were too many sacred cows. Traditions that were like a ball and chain to the health of those small churches. Unity is hard to achieve in today's individualistic society. There's more of a functional unity today. People agree to work according to a a plan, even though they may not be of one heart and one mind. Life in the early church was hard and it was dangerous. 
But life in the early church was good because it was biblical. They had a sense of awe. They had true fellowship. They had true brotherhood. Their lives had meaning. As you sit here this morning, would you say life is good? Remember, for those first century Christians, when they trusted Christ, they lost their jobs, their friends, their family who were loyal to Judaism. Many of them lost their lives. And still life was good because they knew the risen Savior. Life had meaning. In Greek, it literally says one in heart and one in soul, one in heart emotionally being committed to the same thing. And they were of the same mind. They had the same theology. John 17, 20 through 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, Christ said, but for those who believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. And they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, this unity is not conformity where everybody's exactly alike. It's not organizational where everybody's of the same denomination. Some of the worst times in the history of the church is, has been when everyone had been a part of one large church to about the 1500s. It's not talking about that kind of unity. The unity that Jesus prayed for is patterned after the unity of the Father and the Son. Unity of mind and will and love and purpose. It's what the church should experience and what the church seemed to have in that first century. There are things that divide us as Christians, different points of view, a lot of them secondary issues. We will always have those who have different ministries, who have different talents and gifts. We work differently. There's nothing wrong with many of those differences. They're given to us by God, but if we are to work together, we can't be proud and self-righteous. We have to be like those first century Christians. They were united in their devotion to the Lord. First Chronicles 12:38. All these being men of war who could draw up in battle formation came to Hebron with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest also in Israel were of one mind to make David king. Israel was of one mind to make David king as the apostles were one mind to make sure everybody knew Jesus was king. The king of kings. The church in Acts was united in the deepest part of its being. If we are true believers, we share a fundamental unity in the core of our beings. At this point, there were no divisions. They were individuals with one purpose. They were united as to who Christ was, the second person of the Trinity, Lord of all. 
They all recognize the necessity of living for Him. 1 John 1, 7, If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. True fellowship involves obedience to Christ. I like Psalm 133, 1-3. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head running down, the beard running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. And explaining the unity, this unity, David recalled a scene with obvious affection for the high priest being anointed with oil. When the oil was poured over his head, it ran down his beard and into his robes. Unity is like that. Oh, it overflows to others. It's refreshing. When the church is most effective, there is great unity. Fernando and his um, commentary gives us five keys to maintain spiritual unity. Number one, the individual must crucify himself. As Christ's humility is a model for us, as we see in Philippians 2 and and, uh, 2 Peter 2. And we need to emulate that if we're to maintain unity within the body. When difficulty comes and we follow that example and exhibit long-suffering, we're going to develop unity. In Ephesians 4, it says we we are patient, we bear with one another in love, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. We forgive. We don't hold grudges. There was a church in Bluebell, Pennsylvania, Presbyterian church. and There was a, an issue in the church. People were angry at each other. And one Sunday morning, you know, the one person on one side of that issue was on one side of the sanctuary. The other, somebody else was on the other side of the issue was on the other side. And they, through the whole service, they just were staring at each other. Just angry. And then they jumped up and they started a fist fight right in the middle of church, right in the, right in the, in the aisle. And uh, the whole church jumped in and they were fighting. The police had to be called. Not a, not a lot of unity there. When self has been crucified, then we can f- follow Paul, as he says in Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I might be angry with somebody, but the thing that's going to keep me in my chair is my reverence for Christ. I'm not getting up and starting a fight. Many liberal Christians refer to the abuse of this principle, and they try to completely eliminate it. They do not feel a church has any right to make demands on its members. They choose to leave a church if it doesn't meet their needs. People like that will not benefit from the deep fellowship of any church. And they will not benefit from the spiritual accountability that comes from a biblical church. Number two, leaders make maintaining unity a high priority. Ephesians 4, 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Spudazzo in the Greek, to make every effort to die to self. 
Often disunity can produce huge conflicts that will cause people to leave a church. Unless you walk in the light, true fellowship isn't possible. Our job is to help you walk in the light. As leaders and teachers, we can never take sides with cliques. We can never settle for anything less than being of one heart and one mind. Number three, believers need to meet often. There's no unity without relationships. Nor if we are not vulnerable in those relationships. And as a board in in Wisconsin, in the church there, we tried to model that. And we would meet often. And we enjoyed each other. People knew that. And uh, we, we would have a board meeting once a month. And the first hour was prayer. Um then study, then a business meeting. But when I came on sabbatical here in 2016, I came back then and uh, they had reduced that first uh, hour of prayer to a half hour. And yes, we got home earlier, uh, but were we as effective? John Wesley, in in putting together some small groups in his church, he said this about them. They were to meet once a week at least, to come punctually at the hour appointed, to begin with singing and prayer, to to speak each of us in order, freely and plainly, the true state of our soul with the faults we have committed in thought, word, and deed, and the temptations we have felt since the last meeting, to desire some person, a leader among us, to, to speak first and then to ask the rest and order as many as searching questions as may be concerning their state, their sin, and their temptations. When you're in a close group like that and you feel you can share what's on your heart and you see people receive whatever you say with grace and mercy, that draws you into them. My mother was in a, a, a church, a liberal church in western Pennsylvania, and I remember going to, with her once, and she was telling me things that were bothering her. And, and I said, we go to your pastor. And she goes, oh, I would never want my pastor to know what was going on in my life. Not a lot of opportunity for ministry then. Number four, Christian fellowship is essential. Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. For this to be true, you have to practice these things so that this love can be deepened. The church, according to Ephesians 4, is to be built up in love. So we come and we worship and we pray. We go to Bible study. We go to Sunday school. And that's all part of the process. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a commitment to a common mission. 
There's a passion for souls. There's a passion to know Christ and experience the power of His resurrection. A passion for the unborn. Amen? So thankful for what they did with Roe versus Wade. A passion for the Word. Number five, an agreement on a course of action. In Wisconsin, we, we, our church building was a sanctuary and then a fellowship hall with a small kitchen. And, and in that fellowship hall were partitions and our Sunday school classes were, were in there. But it was so noisy. And we as a church said, we need a Sunday school building. So we raised $250,000 in that small church and we built it ourselves. And um, debt-free. And, and it, you know, really helped us in our education program. We were, we were determined to uh, do Awana, and about half the church was involved with that, to make that work. We were involved in aggressive evangelism. And the more of those people who bought into that, the deeper we grew together, the stronger was our unity. Number two, the priority of evangelism, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. Someone wrote that the church has many generals and generals exist to lead people into battle. If they're not battling Satan for the expansion of the kingdom, they're going to be battling each other. Swindoll says if you put two hunting dogs into a pen and just leave them there, they're going to fight each other. But if you send them after the fox, they're going to work together. Most churches seem to use a lot of energy fighting over the music or the color of the carpet instead of working and praying together to win souls. The main business of the church was to witness for Christ. The apostles were doing it with great power, dynamis, meaning miracles there. They were giving testimony to the resurrection of Christ. They were prohibited to speak in Jesus' name, but they didn't listen. God had another plan. They did it with great power under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So their words were effective in leading people to a saving knowledge of Christ. When someone hears the gospel, it can lead them to Christ or it can harden their hearts. To oppose the message which was true when Stephen preached to the Jews. In chapter 6, verse 10, But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then he really preached a long, long sermon. And um, what did they do to him? Stoned him. It forces those who hear to make a decision, either for or against the gospel. Without the Holy Spirit, nothing good will happen when we preach. The resurrection of Christ was the focus of their preaching, even when it offended people. And the truth will offend. But the apostles never watered down the message to avoid offending anyone. I told you, I think, in, 
in Wisconsin, in our little town, there were several churches, and they would meet once a year and have an ecumenical service. And they'd always say, oh, why won't you come? What do you think, you're better than us? And said, no. Um, but there was the, the Roman Catholic priest and the Lutheran pastor who would marry homosexuals and the UCC pastor who would marry homosexuals and, and uh, the, the Assemblies of God pastor who organized this, he would... He would say, why won't you come? And I'd say, I don't want my people to sit under false teachers. I said, why do you do it? He goes, I don't want to offend anybody. When Larry King asked Bruce Wilkerson if the 9-11 hijackers went to hell, there was no way you could make sense of what he said. And the answer to that question is yes, they went to hell. MacArthur said on that same show that only committed Christians go to heaven and blowing up innocent people isn't characteristic of men with genuine saving faith. The message of Christianity is exclusive. You're not a Christian just because you prayed the sinner's prayer. You're not a Christian if you're practicing sin. You're not a Christian if you think other religions can also save you. Several years ago, there was a woman at uh, Wheaton College, a Christian college in the Chicago area. And she, one of their professors, was teaching that we pray to the same God as the Muslims. And the administration went to her and said, you know, just please don't teach that anymore. They weren't going to fire her just as long as she stopped teaching that. But she wouldn't. And so they fired her. And the thing that really bothered me about that was that 30 faculty members tried to get her to get the administration to give her back her job. She apparently doesn't understand the scriptures if she thinks that. Mormons, you know, no matter what Joel Steen says, are not Christians. Roman Catholicism teaches another gospel. Baptism guarantees you nothing. We were somebody the other night and they were talking about how the, the, their family member doesn't believe, but maybe, you know, they say, but they were baptized. Doesn't do anything for you. Doesn't get you one inch closer to God without saving faith. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. If you are guilty of any of these things, meaning they characterize your life, you can't be saved. 1 John 3, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is what? Of the devil. Of the devil. That's why we have to talk about repentance. The disciples didn't believe in easy believism. They didn't believe in cheap grace where you trust Christ and then you can live any way you please. It's interesting to look at the Gospels and they mention repentance 16 times. Acts 11 times. Revelation 12 times. 
So that while your life was characterized by lying and immorality, it's not any longer. And if that's true, if you've trusted Christ and he's transformed you, then verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 6 is true of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Evangelism means proclaiming the crucified, resurrected Christ, the second person of the Trinity. The only way to God through faith alone, a faith that transforms you. I was getting my hair cut the other day. My my mother-in-law always looks at me and says, why do you need a haircut? You don't have any hair. But um, I went anyway and uh, share the gospel. And uh, the gal who's cut my hair the last couple of times is an Iranian gal, Shaw. And uh, I had not shared the gospel with her yet. But finally I said, so you grew up in Iran. I said, you were a Muslim. She goes, I had to be a Muslim. She goes, you didn't have any choice but to be a Muslim. But she said, now... I just believe in God and Jesus. So that was not the answer I was expecting to hear, but thrilled to see that she knows the Savior. So if, if, if you have truly been saved, you don't remain the same. You're transformed. If you're attracted to the same sex, you don't act on it because you want to honor God. You're, you're renewed to obey the word of God by the power of the Spirit. And great power comes from great prayer. So you give a bold, accurate, clear, and thorough presentation of the gospel. Joel Olstein, uh, when asked if... Orthodox Jews who reject Jesus are saved. He said, well, I don't want to say they're, they're not saved. You know, it's not up to me who goes to heaven. I just know for me, it's Christ. Is there one gospel or not? Is there one gospel or not? Galatians 1, 6-8, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by grace, by the grace of Christ, for a different gospel. Which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It says back in in, uh, Acts 4, an abundant grace was on them all. Grace, God's favor. God's favor was on them. And when God's favor is on us, we we will see converts. Our part is to live holy lives, to be bold. God does the harvesting. I asked a pastor in Wisconsin, um, if you died tonight, would you go to heaven? And she said, I think so. And I said, if God said, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you say? And she said, I did my best. Is that the gospel? No. People need the Lord and we possess the kingdom, the the keys of the kingdom, which are what? The gospel, the gospel. But unless we aggressively share Christ, we keep those keys in our desk. 
Unless we pray diligently, we're not going out in the power and favor of the Lord. Unless we know the word, we will not be able to defend it. The first century church had true unity. And one reason was they had the same mission, save souls. Number three, verses 34 through 37. The priority of sharing. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. And lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's the question. Does your, do you own your possessions or do your possessions own you? Or better yet, does God own your possessions? You can often see how much someone loves Christ by how generous they are. For decades, various universities, hospitals, and other charitable organizations had received huge financial gifts, as high as $30 million to one recipient from an anonymous donor. The gifts came in cashier's checks so that the recipient could not trace the source. But in 1997, this secret giver was forced to reveal himself when he sold his company, and a lawsuit over the sale disclosed his anonymous donations. His name was Charles Feeney, one of the co-founders of a company called Duty Free Shops, which sells luxury items in airports and in the mid-90s sales, had sales of more than $3 billion annually. According to writer Judith Miller of the New York Times, over a 15-year period, Feeney's two charitable foundations gave away some $600 million, leaving him $5 million. In 1997, the proceeds... From the sale of duty-free shops and other business assets, some $3.5 billion also went into his charitable foundations. Mr. Feeney reluctantly explained his generosity. I simply decided I had enough money. He said, it, it, it doesn't drive my life. I'm a what-you-see-is-what-you-get kind of guy. Indeed, the, the lawyer who advised him in the setting up of his chari- charitable foundations said he doesn't own a house, he doesn't own a car, he flies economy, and I think his watch costs about $15. Not too many people can handle money like this. It it tends to own them, or it leads them away from the faith, as it talks about in 1 Timothy 6. Verse 34, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales. Remember in Galatians chapter 2 verse 10, they only ask us, this is Paul talking about the uh, disciples, they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing we were also eager to do. Sharing like that didn't start in the New Testament, it started in the Old Testament. God always has had a heart for the poor. If there is a poor man among you, this is in Deuteronomy, 
If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns and the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother, but you shall freely upon your, your hand, you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend to him sufficient for his need, whatever he lacks. John Calvin said we must have hearts that are harder than iron if we're not moved by the reading of this narrative in Acts. Verse 35, and he laid them at the apostles' feet, the proceeds of those sales or a portion of it, and, and they would be distributed to each as they had need. Christ said you will always have the poor with you, but we need to be generous. Remember in Acts chapter 5, verse 4, when Ananias and Sapphira could have given what they chose to give out of the proceeds of the, the sale of their land, but they didn't. They lied about it, and God dealt with them. You see that in the first century church, they took care of the needy. They had a benevolence fund for widows in Acts 6. In Acts 12, Mary owned a, a house and a maid. She didn't sell that, but she was hospitable with what she had. There was no common ownership. This isn't talking about socialism. It, when we went to Albuquerque and Nevada, both those churches, it, when we first went there, they were giving only 2% out of their budget to missions. And I had to fight hard, and I angered a few people to get it to 10% while I was there. When we went to Wisconsin... It was already 20%, and we maintained that throughout that time. I mean, you can't give everything you have, but give as the Holy Spirit leads you. What do we have that we have not received from God's gracious hand? I think, you know, as, as Joe was saying this morning in his prayer, David said in First Chronicles 29, O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided to build you a house for your holy name, it is from your hand and all is yours. Verses 36 and 37. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and all who owned a tract of land sold it and, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Generous and committed to the mission and to the needs of others. Another example of someone who recognized that what he had belonged to God. In the last two weeks, I've tried to buy lunch for a couple homeless guys and they just wanted money. So I said, eh, I'm not going to give you money. But there's a guy in, in Santa Monica I did and gave a tract to, shared the gospel with and I was going through the drive through at McDonald's, and there was a homeless guy at the other end. And so instead of one oatmeal and one milk, I got two oatmeals and, and uh, two milks and gave him half and gave him the rest of my McDonald's gift card. And my son Mason was going past a, 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 a mom and her uh, son, and uh, they you know, said what they needed, and he had a $50 bill, and he handed that to them. I... I don't like to do that, but, you know, just be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit leads you. Always have a track with you you can hand to them. 
In Wisconsin, if someone had a hardship in the church, our free will offerings were unbelievable. And like when uh, things like uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina came and we took up an offering, unbelievable amount of money we sent to the IFCA that was going to funnel that to a church in that area that could minister to those people. At times we paid for people's, outside of the church, just as an outreach, people's utilities. We have to hold our possessions with an open hand, not a closed hand. Because everything we have comes from his hand. What did we learn today? Life in the early church was good because it was biblical. It was Christ-centered. There was unity. It was centered around the teaching of the apostles and a common purpose, a common mission. They were aggressive in evangelism. They were bold. They were risk-takers. They were cheerful givers. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. And they just loved being together. How do we apply it? Now that we're meeting together, we're not just online, and um, we need to spend time together. And Sunday school is a good place. Fellowship time afterwards where you can chat with people and um, the home groups or community groups that George is talking about, you know, starting up in the near future. I've been in this church now since, I think, January. And I believe there's unity here. But let's pray God would deepen that. And let's do our part and be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Making fellowship a priority and evangelism and sharing with others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for bringing us together and the the unity we have and the fellowship we have because everything we do is around the Word of God and around our love for Jesus and for others. Father, just help that to continue to grow and deepen. So that we can have more of an impact in this, in this area, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.